minutes together tonight, we are not going to cover the full breadth of this topic. Like, there's just no way. Uh, if we wanted to full, cover the full breadth of this topic, we would have to have a few of these in a row, probably over the span of weeks. And so what I, what I want you to kind of notice is in the middle of your table, there's a list of resources. And uh, in that list of resources, they're kind of categorized. And so you have, you know, just different categories of books. Um, there is a wealth of information out there written by godly men and godly women to help walk us through specific issues and give us the opportunity to really think about those things deeply. Um, I like to think about reading. Uh, reading is thinking, right? And so when we, we read a book, what we're getting the opportunity to do is explore a topic and think about it more deeply on our own. And so maybe there's something that you're really interested and intrigued in from our conversation. Maybe there's an aspect of this conversation that sticks out to you and you want to grab something from here and just dig in on your own or grab a friend and dig, in on it with, dig into it with them. But there's kind of two things that I really want to draw your attention to. The first one is this. Uh, under Sex and Sexuality, there's a book called Mom and Dad, What's Sex? Giving Your Kids a Gospel-Centered View of Sex and Our Culture. is written by Jessica Thompson and Joel Fitzpatrick. That's going to be a really helpful uh, one for you guys, and especially kind of hits home with a lot of what you just said uh, regarding things that you want to take out of this. And so you're gonna, I think you're going to take some stuff out of this, but I also think if you read that book, you're going to get even more, um, and it's just going to be that much more helpful for you. Uh, but then if you go down a little bit, uh, down that list uh, under Sex and Sexuality, there are four resources. It's called God's Design for Sex Series, and there are four age-appropriate books. So you can start having this conversation with kids who are 3 to 5, 5 to 8, 8 through 11, and 11 through 14. So these are just helpful things for you to read with your children. Uh, I like to read a book with Leon sometimes when I put him to sleep at night. And so, you know, uh, the story of me is probably one that I'm going to buy here, here pretty soon to just start giving him the opportunity to understand, man, well, who am I? Like, God created me. What did he create me for? Um, and it's going to kind of answer some of those questions. But then at the bottom, in online resources, there's uh, a sex ed curriculum for families and parent conversation guide. It was written up by Rooted Ministries. Uh, Rooted Ministries is a ministry that seeks to take uh, the gospel and grace and inject it into student ministry. That's what their whole thing is about. A lot of times when you uh, go to or talk about student ministry things or ministry to teenagers, it really focuses a lot on behavior modification. Right, So like when they give the sex talk, they say, don't watch porn, don't masturbate, don't do this, don't do that. But they never really talk about the gospel or the implications of the gospel on a Christian as we kind of explore and talk about these issues. And so Rooted um, has written a phenomenal sex ed curriculum, which isn't, don't think sex ed like school. Just think, I, I like parent conversation guide. This is something, a tool for you to use as a parent to talk about these things with your kid. But it's also going to give you some resources to kind of help them understand this topic a little bit more. And so I just kind of wanted to highlight a couple of those for you. All of these things are going to be huge. Um, I mean, these are all great resources written by, again, godly men and women who have explored these issues in depth. And so uh, I'm pulling much of what I've gotten from many of the authors of, of those resources and, and people who have, who have made those resources. So um, they are trustworthy, they are good, and I'm the type of guy where I love to resource people. So um, if you have a question about any resources on any topic, please ask, because I would love to find something for you if I don't know something's available already. Um, so yeah, my, my, my hope during this time is I, I want this to serve as a primer for you. I really want to give you a broad overview of here's what the Bible says about these issues, here's what this looks like, but then I want to dig in deep on how do we practically 
take the beauty and the truth and the majesty of the gospel and use that as, as, as something, as a template for how we walk alongside people who are struggling with sexual issues. A lot of the information from this training was, uh, and content of this tra training was put out by Harvest USA. Uh, they're a phenomenal ministry. I sat through a workshop on gospel sexuality for youth pastors. And one of the things that they kind of challenged us to do was take the training to parents. And so I'm like, okay, I'm not going to try to reinvent the wheel. We'll just do this thing with parents. And so I've adapted a little bit for our context and, and kind of added some stuff to it that I think would be helpful for you guys. But a lot of this stuff is coming from them. And so I want to give you an overview of what the scriptures say about sexuality and then practically think through how do we engage people struggling in these areas with the gospel. Um, I hope that we can get through the content and then just leave some time for questions at the end. So uh, I'm a quick talker, so if you, this is, a, this is like, a, like a, it's not a sermon, so interrupt me if you need me to repeat something, like tell me to shut up if you're writing, like totally, it's, it's totally fine. So um, please do that. So uh, sexual issues are a huge part of my story. So um, I was exposed to pornography for the first time in the summer between my first and second grade years. Um, I was introduced to it by a sibling, an older sibling, of course, because, you know, typically for us youngests, that's how things work. And um, as I was kind of introduced to that, it, uh, what I, re I really didn't even realize this until later on in life, but that was such a formative thing for me. Uh, my exposure to pornography at a young age caused me to think that of, of sex as something that was there for my own benefit. It was something for my pleasure. Um, it, was, it, it kind of led for me to have a distorted view of manhood, a distorted view of women, and a distorted view of sexuality in general. And so as a teenager, I was pro-everything. So like pro-gay, pro-all of the categories that you see on that sheet. I thought that, that gay marriage was beautiful. I thought that you could love whoever it is that you claim to love. I thought that you could determine your own gender. If you felt like a woman, great, like go do your thing. I'm not going to bother you. Um, and that was very much how I operated for, for a long time. And uh, I met Jesus at 18 years old. I opened up the Bible. I started reading the Bible for myself. Get this, I got converted before my mind changed in any of those areas. So when I met Jesus, I was still pro-everything. And it was through opening up the scriptures and reading the scriptures for myself that my own perspectives on these issues began to change. God used the Bible and the truth of his word to shape, reshape, and retool and cause me to rethink how I thought about sexuality. And so now I, I affirm a, a scriptural view of sexuality and gender. God created humanity, male and female, and established marriage to be a covenant between one man and one woman for life. That, that's, that's where I stand. I stand on the word. I believe the word teaches that. We're going to talk about that a little bit later tonight. And so as my convictions about sexuality continued to develop, uh, suspicion became reality for me when a close family member, it was, it's, a, it's a brother of mine, uh, came out to our family as gay. And so he's currently married. Um, him and his husband plan on having children someday. And as I found out that a brother of mine came out as gay, the, the, there were two things that really popped in my mind. The first was this. Sarah and I both looked at each other and said, I wish we lived closer to them, just so we could be around them, so we could encourage them, so we could walk with them, so we could take the truths of the gospel and live them out with them alongside of them as an everyday way of life. It's really hard to do that from a distance from across the country. But the second thing is this. I really need to wrap my head and my heart around what the Lord says about these things so that I can understand them, walk in them, and communicate them to other family members so that they know where I stand, right? Because the moment that I disagree with a family member on something they're doing, the moment you could have family drama and conflict. So I want to make sure that we understand where we stand and can communicate that in a way that 
displays the grace and truth of the scriptures. And so um, this is a, a huge topic for me. This is something that hits home for me. Um, this is something that is a big deal uh, for me. And I think one of the biggest challenges facing people uh, who, are, who are Christ followers, who are in the church, when it comes to sexual issues is a lack of empathy. I think we, sh- we, we suffer from a lack of empathy when it, when it comes to these issues. As, as I've continued to learn and, and grown as a Christ follower in our culture, empathy only became more difficult, right? So the more I grew in my understanding of the word, the more I started to disagree with what was happening in the LGBTQI plus movement. The more I started to disagree with them, the more I began to see that category of people as, as almost like with this us versus them mentality, right? And so you saw this happen a few years ago when the Supreme Court signed into law that gay marriage was legal across the United States. What happened was this. The United States government put on their boxing gloves and what it felt like was they took a big swing at the church and hit the church with a haymaker in the jaw. And you know what the church did? The church put on their gloves and swung back. And it was ugly. And so what you've seen ever since then was this very public, cultural, us versus them mentality. And it's wrong. It's unbiblical. It's, it's not good. There is a way for us to navigate life with people that we disagree with on fundamental issues in a way that doesn't make us look like jerks. Now here's the reality, and I, and I, want, I want you to say this. Jesus promised that if they did not receive him, they would not receive us, right? If the world did not receive Jesus, the world's not going to receive us. So what I'm not saying is that there's going to be no opposition. What I am saying is that we, people will be opposed to us, but we don't have to be jerks. We can own the things that we can control. We can own the things that we, that we say, the ways that we act, the ways that we respond. And we can stand on biblical truth and say confidently that, God is, is, is not for and does not support. The scriptures do not testify to a marriage that is outside of the context of male and female. It has to be that way. And we can do that in a way that's both faithful to the word and yet gracious to those we're walking with. So gospel sexuality, though, is much more than gay marriage, transgenderism, and sex before marriage. If we were only thinking along like these terms, if we're only thinking about gospel sexuality in, in the context of LGBTQI plus whatever, um, we're missing the whole point of, of what the Bible says about sex and gender. The whole point of gathering together tonight is not to give you a bunch of biblical evidence to support your convictions. I'm not going to do that. I mean, I will in, in some sense. But um, the point of tonight is to think through with you how we can take these truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and see how they help us navigate relationships with people. See how they help us navigate opportunities that we're walking with people. See how they help us navigate walking through life with people in such a way that that reveals the truth of Scripture and calls people to repentance and faith. And so, as people who are regularly immersed in Western culture, right? You and I are from the U.S. We were born in the U.S. most likely, and um, we're immersed in the culture every day. All of us, at some level, have been sexualized, right? So before we even open up our Bibles... We have an opinion about sex, its purpose, its, its function, how it works, how it's supposed to look, how it's not supposed to look, how it's supposed to feel, how it's not supposed to feel. Like We have an opinion before we even open the Bible. We have an opinion about what it means, what it means for us, why it's important, why it's not important. And this makes the need to teach on sexuality in the church huge. It's a high priority and it should be a high priority for us. We must not seek to be influenced by our culture or our own opinion we must seek to enter into the Bible and be shaped by the scriptures and be shaped by God's opinion and what he has declared to be true about these issues. 
So after penning what was one of the most robust statements about the gospel and theology in the entire Bible, Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 12 makes a transition. He starts to move away from um, this robust theological expose and then starts to apply those truths to the lives of the people in the church of Rome. And he starts that transition by saying this. He says this in Romans 12.1. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, So because of the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? Why should we not conform to the world? Why should we seek to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in the scriptures? Well, this is why. So that by testing, which includes opposition, which includes our own personal thought, and discernment. By testing, you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so uh, this, this captures, I think, how I want to approach this tonight, right? As we approach this issue, I want us to corporately present ourselves to God in worship of him and his name. And as we present ourselves to God, he promises to help us not conform to the world, and he promises to transform us by the renewing of our mind. So before we get into the like, heavy content of tonight, I want to pray and then um, we're going to jump in. We're going to move quickly because I really want to have time for questions at the end because I think you guys probably will have some and I think that might even be some of the most helpful things that we do. So, uh, Father, as we dig into this heavy, difficult topic, guide our time, lead our time. If there's anything I've prepared uh, that you don't want me to say, uh, shut my mouth. And yet, if there's something that I haven't prepared that you want me to say, uh, give me the, the, the dependence on your spirit to speak it. Lord, we need you, and so we ask for your spirit to enlighten our eyes, open our eyes to see the wonders of your word, and help us take the realities of the gospel and apply them to our conversations and interactions with people who are struggling sexually. God, if there's anybody in this room who's struggling sexually, I pray that you would encourage them from your word tonight, remind them who they are in Christ, and call them to faith and repentance, to turn away from uh, the temptations of sexual sin and to turn toward the light and the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so now that we've kind of established our goals and our hopes for the night, um, let's think about what gospel sexuality is and what it goes after. So for you note takers, the unacceptable blanks that are on that, that, that front sheet, we're about to hit those right now. So you can get your pen out and you can fill those things in. So what is gospel sexuality? Gospel sexuality is biblical. It's biblical. We aren't going to rely on external sources or try to reinvent something, right? We're going to rely on the scriptures. We're going to seek God's word. We're going to seek what he has to say about this. And it's going to help us think through issues of sexuality. Gospel sexuality isn't just biblical. It's Christ-centered, right? We're going to commit to the reality tonight that it is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone who has the power to change people, right? There's no argument. There's no convincing. There's nothing that I can do that can change somebody's heart. It is Christ and Christ alone that has the power to do that. And so Jesus does the work of transformation in others and gives us insight on how we can be faithful in doing our part of gospel proclamation, right? Jesus does the transformation and he calls us to be faithful in our part of proclamation. And so gospel sexuality is biblical, it's Christ-centered, and gospel sexuality talks about sex. And so that's what we're talking about tonight. We should never speak about sex in vague generalities. I think this is when you hear about sex talked about often in in church world, in Christian circles, it's talked about in vague generalities, right? We need to be specific when it comes 
to sex. And especially with young people, we need to be specific when it comes to issues of sex. But again, you know, we kind of talked about this earlier. We also want to be age appropriate. And so as we think about these issues, it's kind of up to us to really gauge and ask the Lord to help us think through where our kids are at and what's appropriate for them to know and what's appropriate for them to not know. I can't give you those answers. Uh, you need to lean on and rely on the Spirit. Um, rely on, you know, your, your spouse who also knows your kids. Rely on friends who probably have kids the same age, and they're going to help you kind of sort through what that looks like. And so as I thought about this issue in our culture, and I thought about Eureka, Metamora, Washington, right, just this central Illinois kind of weird rural but suburban-like area, because uh, there's corn, but it feels like suburbia. That's just kind of how, how it is, probably because we're connected and the internet helps with all of those things. But um, there are a few things that really stuck out to me. Like These are, are things that I think fit under the umbrella of so gospel sexuality and things that we need to be thinking about as we go through the content. So the first is hookup culture. Um, right? Hookup culture is this expectation by our culture and by the people in our culture that sexual fulfillment is so much of a part of your identity, it's to be explored and satisfied outside of the context of marriage. Right? And so as you explore your sexuality, you discover more and more of who you are. And so hookup culture actually encourages human beings to engage in sexual activity as a means to discover more and more of who they are. And so hookup culture drives a lot of that. The second thing is gender dysphoria. Now gender dysphoria, which is common, associ commonly associated with transgenderism, uh, which, you know, again, you have resources on what that is with you, but um, it, it, there are actually many categories that fall under uh, many, many labels, I would say, or many types of, of gender dysphoria. Transgenderism is one of those. That's the one that commonly comes to mind for us, right? Because when we think of gender dysphoria, or transgenderism, we're thinking about bathrooms, we're thinking about all these things that, you know, we're worried about. And the, and the reality is, is, is this is so much of a bigger issue than just bathrooms. So much of a bigger issue than just bathroom. So let's not get hung up on the small stuff. Let's keep rolling, right? So for help on understanding this issue, I, I want you to consult your handouts. But also this, gender dysphoria is actually something I would encourage you to go to secular resources for as well because they're going to give you information about not just what Christians are saying about gender dysphoria, but what, that, what the world is saying about gender dysphoria. And it's going to help you catch and see the, the lies the ways that it contradicts the truth of the Bible, and it's actually going to help you engage those that you know who might be in that area and in that realm. You kind of get in their world, get to understand what they're thinking, what, they're, what, they, what they believe, and then it helps you engage what they're thinking, what they believe with the gospel. So I'm going to encourage you not to just go towards Christian resources, but to also go towards worldly ones as well, because I trust the Spirit of God is in you, and he's going to help you sort through what's true and what's not. Um, another issue that I think is, is really important for us to talk about under the umbrella of gospel sexuality is porn. Right? I, like to th I like to think of porn this way. It's the sexual exploitation of people for a viewer's sexual satisfaction and fulfillment. And so porn is so much more than looking at somebody who's naked that's not your spouse. It's anything that is the exploitation of somebody for the viewer's own sexual satisfaction and fulfillment. I like to think of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Adultery is not just the physical act of adultery. It's the mental act of adultery. It's, the, it's when your eye looks at someone who is not your spouse in a way that, that craves that for yourself, for your own pleasure. Pornography can be found in anything from risque sexual material in a magazine or an ad to videos online or photos, stories on social media. The next kind of issue that I think falls under this umbrella is same-sex attraction. 
Uh, you won't hear me ever really use the word homosexual, and the reason why is I'm trying to train myself to not use that word, because when I interact with people who are gay, they would prefer to be called gay. I'm just going to call them gay, because we mean the same thing, and I'm not going to get hung up on words. I'm not going to let words be a barrier between me and the gospel and somebody else, and so I'll speak to you on your terms and then come at you with the truth. But I, I like to frame this by same-sex attraction, because I think for us, again, in a, in a, in a culture that's so disconnected, from same-sex attraction, being the church. It's hard for us to empathize with somebody who's there. And so I think the word same-sex attraction is really helpful for us because it really gets to the heart of what's going on in the issue. It's not just, it's not, it's not framing it in this, this vague term homosexuality. It's helping us get to the heart of the temptation that's at the center of that issue. Um, and there's other temptations that are kind of going on there as well. So I just think that terminology is more helpful. Uh, you can feel free to steal it if you want. It's not mine, so feel free to use it. Uh, but yeah, and then uh, another thing that again falls under this umbrella is masturbation. So I would categorize or think of masturbation as personally fulfilling your sexual desires on your own. The interesting thing about this issue, and um, uh, this might surprise you, is the Bible actually never explicitly commands against masturbation. It never condemns the action of masturbation. What makes masturbation sin is that it is typically linked to other issues of sexual sin. Right? So, so masturbation is typically linked to viewing porn, sexual fantasies, the objectifying of people made in God's image, all for the sexual fulfillment and pleasure of self, which in and of itself can be an idol. And so masturbation is something that the Bible might not necessarily condemn against outright, but everything else that's associated with it is sin, which is what makes it sin. It's an expression of our sin nature. It's a way that our sin or the sin in our heart is manifesting itself in our actions. So even though the action isn't condemned, what's leading, what's driving, what's pushing that action is. And so that's actually what makes masturbation sin. See, it's helpful when we actually think about these things. But I, I, when, I, when I realized, I was like, wait, that's crazy. I never, never even thought about that. The Bible doesn't actually come out and condemn that action. Yes? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I don't think Jesus, when he's giving that illustration, I don't think Jesus is thinking about masturbation. What I think Jesus is doing is I think he's using hyperbole to, to teach his disciples that when it comes to sin, we take extreme measures to avoid it. Whatever it takes to avoid it, we avoid it. And I, and I think that's what he's getting at in that passage. But, but again, what you said is, if your, if your eye causes you to sin, or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Well, again, Jesus is condemning the sin that would be driving something like a behavior like masturbation. And so that, that's, that categorizes that or frames it as sin, right? I can, I, can, I can engage in sexual activity with my wife in a way that's sinful. Having sex with my wife is a good thing. It's a godly thing, but I can do it for my own personal fulfillment, and that makes that behavior then sinful because of the thing that's driving it. So it's, it's kind of similar to that. Is that helpful? Yeah, no, that's good. Thank you for, like, interrupting me, and come on. Yes, it's good stuff. So, um, so, so, so masturbation, right, this is, this is something. But then another issue, I think, in our culture, something that we need to keep under the umbrella of gospel sexuality is sexting. Uh, I like to define sexting as ex- the exchange of erotic language or images for sexual fulfillment with other people. Um, pretty self-explanatory. I don't have to dig into that anymore. So, uh, and then marriage. I think marriage is actually the most important issue on here, and marriage is actually how we're going to think about this conversation tonight. You see, because um, 
our view of marriage can often be shaped by our own opinion or culture's opinion instead of being shaped by the scriptures. And, and what I think is about, about marriage is key, that marriage bears significant weight on how we approach the issues of sexuality. A, a, a proper theology or, or understanding, biblical understanding of, of, of marriage and gender is going to lead to a proper understanding of sexuality. The way that the Bible frames gender and marriage is going to help us see and create a, a sexual ethic, if it will, for us to kind of use as a filter as we navigate sexual issues. And I'm actually going to show you how that works in the Bible. So what we're actually not going to do is we're not going to go through the Bible and see all the places that God condemns homosexuality. We're not going to do that tonight. What we're going to do is we're going to see how Jesus and the Gospels teach us about marriage and gender and how that teaching of marriage and gender informs our theology of marriage, sexuality, and gender, which then applies itself in the way that we approach these issues. So that's kind of how we're going to look at sexuality in the Scripture. So um, the good thing is I've wrote down all of the verses that I'm going to reference tonight so that you can look at them. What I would encourage you to do is if you're going to study this issue more on your own, to not just look at those verses, but maybe read the chapters that are surrounding those verses so you can get an idea of the context that they fall into. I think a lot of times what we can do with the Bible is we can look at it as like an encyclopedia of topics, and the reality is it's, it's a story. It's a redemptive story putting, pointing to the work of Jesus. And so if we, we, we rip verses out of context, we can start to do things with the Bible that the Bible was actually never designed to do. And so let's not look at these verses as all the verses that talk about uh, marriage and sexuality. Let's look at these verses as truths that God has revealed that we can apply in these areas. And things about God's character and God's nature that we can see that help us work out what it looks like to, to navigate sexual issues in our culture. And so the first one that we're going to go, like many issues in the Bible, I think the first pages uh, talk a lot about it. And so like many issues that we face in our culture, we're going to go to the first pages of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Um, in, this, in this passage, we have this beautiful account of God creating the universe, right? He's establishing himself as Lord. He's establishing himself as, as creator over it. And the interesting thing is, I don't know if you've noticed this when you've read Genesis 1, but its pace is really fast, right? You have like day one. He creates day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. And it's this incredible amount of creative work that's being packed into just syllables. God is doing so much in what seems like such little space in the Bible that it's almost like we're trying to catch up and try to, with our imaginations, trying to figure out what's going on. And um, sometimes that can be to our detriment when we're, when we're reading Genesis. But the point is this. The whole purpose of Genesis is to describe to us who God is through his creative work. And as his creative work is described, the pace is quick, right? So God does a massive amount of creative work in six days. And then something amazing happens on day six. The pace slows way, way down. It slows way down. After God creates animals, the pace slows down, and it says this in verse 26 of chapter one. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want you to hear that. So God created man, singular, in his image. Think of that as humanity. God created humanity. Humanity is one essence, right? In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, plural. What you see in, 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 in this, just packed in this section, is a reflection of God that's both individual and pluralistic. You see, and so we, we, we see in the image of, of, of God put out on human beings, we see a singular essence, humanity, in two distinct persons. Sounds like the Trinity. It's pretty interesting. 
And so the creator slows down. He gives us intimate attention. Uh, he gives intimate attention to the creation of humanity. This is the pinnacle of his creative work. This is his masterpiece. This is his, his baby, if you will, right? Like I think of like the guy who has like the nice car in the garage that for some reason he thinks he needs to wash it every day. But like he really doesn't need to wash it every day because it's just sitting in the garage. But that's his baby. He takes care of it. He gives it intimate attention. The interesting thing about the creation narrative is, is God speaks, God speaks, God speaks, God speaks. And then in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, as he's creating man, he, he forms man from the dust. He, he takes personal ownership in forming man. He doesn't just speak man into existence. There's this very intimate thing happening in the creation of humankind. And so in the first pages of Genesis, we see a key picture of the role of human beings on the earth. They were called to rule. We were called to rule to exercise authority and dominion as those who are to represent God to all of creation. God has given humanity authority like no other creature. As God's representatives, their rule was to reflect back on the one who created them and to take that into creation. One of the interesting things about Genesis is Eden isn't this way of describing all of creation. Eden was a place on the earth, and the human beings were supposed to take Eden into the rest of the world. They were to take God's rule and God's reign and God's presence into the rest of the world as his representatives and as his rulers. And they were to exercise authority and dominion over it. This is why God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Take my pinnacle creative work and spread it all over creation. So God created humanity to share in his goodness, to share in his creative work, and to rule and exercise authority over it on God's behalf. That's what we were created to do. And so Genesis 2, this is really, really fascinating. If you read Genesis 1 like a literal account and then read Genesis 2 as a literal account, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Um, the two actually sound like they contradict one another if you read them as a literal account. And so what the author of Genesis is actually doing is he's doing, he's doing, one, he's doing two different things with him. He's communicating the creation account with two different things in mind. The first one is, Genesis 1, is to give you a picture of who God is. The second one is to communicate the creation account to give you a, an understanding of who humanity is and what we were created to do. And so you can think of Genesis 1 as like the airplane view of creation, right? We're flying over creation. We're seeing everything happen. Broad brush strokes of, of things are happening. God is doing a lot. And then Genesis 2 is kind of like the road trip view of creation where we're kind of, we're down in the valleys. We're, we're looking at the details. We're seeing more and more of what God is doing and we're exploring specifically his creative work, humanity, in Genesis chapter 2. So Genesis chapter 1, broad brushstrokes, God's lordship over all creation. Genesis 2, exploring God's creative work in human beings, specifically what they were called to do, what their purpose was, and why God put us on the earth. That's Genesis 2. But in Genesis 2.24, we see the first teaching on marriage. Right? God establishes marriage in Genesis 2.24, creating humanity, male and female. There are for each other. God had literally created man, man, male and female for each other. We complement each other. We help one another. We lean on each other. There's, there's specific role and design to the way men are and the way that women are. God made them together, and together they reflect God's image to the world. Not separately, but together we reflect God's image to the world, both male and female. If, if, if you have a bunch of men on the earth, you're missing an aspect of God's image. If you have a bunch of women on the earth, you're missing an aspect of God's image both complement and display the glory and majesty of God and their differences. It's beautiful. So Genesis 2.24 gives us this first teaching about marriage. And Jesus himself quotes from this verse in Matthew 19. And that's where we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about marriage today. So Jesus, in Matthew 19, is asked a very interesting question by the Pharisees. 
The Pharisees are ticked off at Jesus because he's messing with their religious system. I want, I want to remind you that the Pharisees were not like these despised, ugly, nasty people in Jewish society. They were actually like well-respected, honorable men. They were the religious elite. They were the pastors and teachers. Essentially, that's the cultural equivalent of their day. They were the, the scribes and the theologians and the scholars. These are, these are the, the, the scribes and Pharisees. They were experts in the law and could take the law and the principles of the law of Moses and apply them into the lives of Jewish people. And they were called to do that, and they were supposed to do that. And so they were mad at Jesus because Jesus is kind of jacking with their religious system. Um, he's messing with these. He's poking a bunch of holes in the way that they do things. He's, he's calling them out for their disobedience to the law. He's exposing their hypocrisy, and he's done this all for three and a half years. And so close to the end of his ministry, the Pharisees go up to him, and they ask him a question. And it's, it's, it's not a normal question. This question uh, was designed to trap Jesus. They asked him this. They said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, for any reason? Jesus, is it according to the law of Moses, is it lawful for, for, us to, for, for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And the, the reason this question would have trapped Jesus is because any way he answered it, he would have been in trouble. Right? So if Jesus said, if Jesus said no, then the Pharisees could say that that they could damage his credibility by being in disagreement with popular opinion among the scholars of his day, right? Because popular opinion among the scholars of the day would have said divorce was, was lawful, it was, it was okay um, for, for certain reasons. And in fact, that, that was abused by the Pharisees, but that's a whole other issue. But so if Jesus would have said, no, it's not lawful, then they would have said, well, Jesus, you disagree with the, these scholars over here, and they would have discredited his name among the people that, that were following him. But if he said yes, then the Pharisees could have accused Jesus of being soft on the law, right? And so anyway, Jesus answers this question, he's, he's, he's toast. And Jesus, he knows what's up. Jesus is amazing when he does things like this. He's just like a little ninja. It's, it's incredible. I'm serious. So what Jesus does is instead of answering their question directly, he begins to just teach them about marriage. What a baller. He's like, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, let me educate you on marriage. And he does it in a way that's really, really, uh, it's funny, actually. Um, so in verse 4, he says, he says this in uh, chapter 19, verse 4. So this is the way that Jesus answers them. He says, have you not read? It's like, hey, dummy, you're supposed to teach the Bible. Haven't you read? It's <laughs> hilarious. Um, so, he's, so he's like, have, have you not read? that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave it. So not only did he say, have you not read? He's like, didn't you get past like page one of the Bible? Like this is, this is, talk, this is, like, this is like elementary stuff. You guys don't know about this? It's, it's absolutely hysterical what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees here. They're trying to trap him, and then Jesus just makes them look silly. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's him quoting Genesis 2.24 right there. And then he says this, So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What, God theref- what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Right? We know that verse because we hear it all the time. It's the last words that a pastor usually says at a wedding. Now why is this important? The Pharisees knew their Bible. So what they do after this is they push back. They say, but the law of Moses permits divorce, and they're right. The law of Moses does permit divorce. It says that divorce can be lawful. There can be a lawful or a, quote-unquote, good, according to the Scripture's way of doing divorce. And so the Pharisees push back. They're like, well, Jesus, the law permits divorce, so how can you say that? 
And then Jesus comes back and answers them by telling them that it was due to the hardness of man's hearts that God permitted divorce. But from the beginning, it was not supposed to be that way. And so what you see in the law of Moses is God accommodating human sinfulness and giving a permission for divorce. But Jesus actually says in here, from the beginning, that wasn't so. It wasn't supposed to be that way. And so because of the hardness of your hearts, well, why are man's hearts hard? Well, sin has done that. And so Jesus is saying because of human sinfulness, that permission was granted. But God's initial design, it was never meant to be that way. Man and woman were never supposed to separate. So afterward, the disciples come to Jesus and tell him that it seems that based on his teaching, it would be easier to be single than to be married. The conclusion of the disciples after hearing Jesus' teaching on marriage is that marriage is a hard thing and it would be easier for them to be single rather than be married. Listen, verse 10 of chapter 19. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. I don't know about you, but every time I've taught about marriage, I've never had somebody come up to me after I taught about it. I was like, man, that's hard. I'd rather be single. Like nobody's ever said that. But I think that's really, really fascinating. Because if we were teaching about marriage like Jesus is, people would catch that marriage is really difficult and it's really hard. And for everyone in this room who's been married longer than five minutes, we would all attest and amen, yeah, marriage is tough. The conclusion of the disciples shows me that maybe there's something missing in our understanding of marriage where we make light of the covenant that's being made between man, woman, and God. So Jesus responds by talking about eunuchs, which is like, it sounds strange to us. Like, why is he talking about eunuchs? What's going on here? And this is really important for our conversation tonight, that Jesus takes this, this thing that the disciples are saying. It's like, man, I'd rather be single than be married. And then what Jesus does, he starts talking about eunuchs. Well, what's the point of Jesus' teaching when he starts to talk about eunuchs? The point is this. It's honorable for a man to be married or choose celibacy. That's huge for us to understand. It is equally as honorable for a human being to choose to get married before the eyes of God or to choose to be celibate before the eyes of God. Neither of those two things are are superior. And and the reason why this is huge is is think about this. Think about our culture for a moment. We're going to talk about worldviews in a little bit, but think about our, our, our culture. The way that our culture functions and operates is that there is just this expectation on behalf of everybody in our culture that you're just like supposed to get married, right? In our culture, it's expected that you're going to get married, period. That, that mindset, that assumption is actually not biblical because what we see here in this passage is that it's, it's equally as honorable for a man to be married or for a man to be single and be sexually inactive. That's what it means to be celibate, in case you didn't know, but I'm sure you did. So neither marriage nor celibacy is more superior or more honorable to God, right? We've seen both extremes. I think in our culture, right, it's, here's the thing, and, and um, I don't think our church does this, but I know many churches that do, is they put marriage as a qualification for being an elder. Like, if you're going to be an elder in a church, you have to be married. Or if you're going to be a pastor in a church, you have to be married. Well, what you're doing is you're taking something that's good and making it supreme. Because what we see here is it's, it's, there, there can definitely be somebody who's a pastor and serving the kingdom and be single. We see that in Paul. Paul never had a wife. And he did some work for the kingdom. Paul actually leveraged his singleness for the glory of God and the good of humanity. And so we see in Paul an example that you can do ministry and follow Jesus and be single. 
And we see in Peter an example of doing it and being married because Peter was married and, and some people actually think Peter had, had kids as well, which makes sense if you're married because you know, you know. So, um, so marriage, what we, see, what we see here is we see Jesus set the table and it's very, very interesting. Jesus provides us with the foundational, the thing laying the groundwork for, for sexual ethics in the Bible. And it's this. The sexual ethic of the Bible goes in one of two directions. Marriage between one man and one woman or celibacy. That's the sexual ethic of the Bible. Anything that goes outside or deviates from those two categories finds its root in sin. It's distorting the original thing that God has designed. This is a foundational thing that we must consider when it comes to specific issues like porn or same-sex attraction, gender dysphoria, hookup culture. Because here's the thing, again, and you heard me talk about this earlier, a good theology of marriage is always going to lead to a good theology of gender and sexuality. It always will. Because you cannot disassociate marriage from those issues. We, if we have an understanding of what the Bible says about marriage, it's going to inform our understanding and, and help us navigate these issues because all of these issues are a distortion of God's original creation, making human beings in his image, male and female, and complementing them for one another, and a distortion of God's original design for those two humans to be married. Why is this so huge? Because it helps us see that the primary concern of God in the redemption of someone who's gay is not to make them heterosexual. Let me say that again. The primary concern of God in invading the life of someone who's gay and bringing them to faith in Christ is not to make them heterosexual. It's not to take a gay person and make them straight. It's to take a gay person and make them like Jesus. That is God's primary concern. When we think about the issue of gay marriage and same-sex attraction, our number one priority, usually, in the way that this is handled in our culture, is that we think that God wants to make gay people heterosexual. According to Jesus, they don't have to be heterosexual. And I know godly men and women who have gone through issues of same-sex attraction and, and, and being gay who have become converted and are now celibate. Because they have temptations for the same gender, but they refuse to act on those temptations. They choose celibacy. Well, it sounds like me, when I have temptations for somebody outside of the context of marriage, what do I do? I I flee those temptations. I resist those temptations. I cling to Christ. I cling to the power of the Spirit. I don't act on those temptations. And I continue in Christ's likeness. And so it is honorable. Sometimes it happens. There's There's a girl named Jackie Hill Perry uh, she's a rapper, which means I think she's awesome because I love hip-hop. But she's a rapper. She, uh, she raps with a, a record label called Humble Beast. You've probably seen me wear the hat. But she wrote a book called Gay Girl, Good God. And it's a memoir. It's actually in your list of resources. It's a, it's a memoir about her story, and she actually talks about this. She's now married to a man and has kids. But she talks about the issue of, of Christians approaching uh, people who are, who are undergoing sins of same-sex attraction and, and their primary concern being making them heterosexual rather than seeing them confronted with the gospel and met with the reality of who Jesus is. Our chief concern when we approach these issues is not to convert somebody to our perspective. It's not to make somebody straight. It's not to make somebody think they're a woman because they're biologically a woman. It's to, it's to see God wreck their heart and convert their soul so that they become like Jesus. That should be the chief concern of each of us as we're interacting with these people. And as we coach our, our kids, 
we need to keep the gospel as the main thing. And so as our kids are interacting with gay people in their school and they're worried about them and they're concerned for them and they're coming home and they're saying, Mom, Dad, what do I do with this person? How do I, how do I talk about them? How do I talk about the Bible with them? We can say, son, daughter, there is nothing you can do in and of your own power that's going to help them know Jesus. Pray for them. Pray with your child for that person specifically. Help your child understand the power of prayer and help your child see that the goal is not to take this gay person and make them straight. The goal is to, for, for this person who doesn't know Jesus to become a Christ follower. And the Holy Spirit will take care of the rest, I promise you. He, he, he does that. He is the, the God who created all things. He will take care of the rest. We also obediently disciple, walk with, and help people follow Jesus, right? So there's an element to where we're going to coach people who are same-sex attracted to, to deal with their sinful temptations in, in, in certain ways, just like I would coach and disciple somebody who deals with greed or, 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 or sexual temptation toward this, the opposite gender, right? Heterosexual temptation. I'm going to coach and disciple them to flee that temptation just like I would somebody else. Any distortion of God's design regarding these things falls under the category of sin. I, I, I love to think of sin as, a, as an overstep. Um, that's actually, when, when the Bible uses the word transgression, that's the core idea that's going on, is that God has actually created boundaries for us to, to flourish as human beings. And so a lot of things, it, it's really ironic, is when a lot of people sin, they're like, ah, well, I'm just being human, right? Well, actually, you're not being human. Because God has given us parameters, he's given us boundaries of what it looks like as human beings to flourish. And so when we sin, we're actually operating outside of, we're overstepping our authority, we're overstepping how God has wired and designed us as human. And so to be truly human the way that God has designed us is actually obedience. It's living in the way that God has designed us to be. That's what it means to be truly human. And so God's declared what's good and what's not good. Sin distorts that vision, right? So sin, what sin does, and we've all experienced this, sin takes evil things and makes them good. It takes evil and it declares it to be good. But it also takes good and declares it to be evil, right? That's why Jesus wasn't accepted, he was rejected. Because it took the good Christ and, and, and made him this evil criminal-like figure on the cross. So as I've talked about sexuality with, with various people, um, one of the most frustrating questions that I've ever been asked is this. And um, I'm sorry if you've asked this question before. I've asked this question before, and then I, I learned why I shouldn't be asking it. Is, uh, John, do you think there's such thing as a gay Christian? Like, is that a thing? Can that be a thing? Can a gay Christian be a thing? And the frustrating thing about this question is it's impossible for me to answer simply. Right? If I say, yeah, 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 there's, there's such a thing as a gay Christian, well, what does that make me sound like? It makes me sound like somebody who gives permission for somebody to claim to worship Christ and walk in sin right? Like if I'm saying, oh yeah, yeah, gay Christian, that's a thing. Well, in your ears, that's going to ring as, well, he's given permission for somebody to claim Jesus and just totally live in rebellion. But if I say no, no, there's no such thing as a gay Christian. Well, what I'm doing is I'm steering people in the direction of thinking that there's no place in the kingdom of God for anyone who struggles with temptations of same-sex attraction. You, did you hear how I framed that? Somebody who struggles with temptations of same-sex attraction. The reason why I'm saying it that way is because that's language that we can empathize with. Why? Because every single person in this room has had a lustful thought for someone or something that they should not have. And the same core thing is going on in a person who is same-sex attracted. They're having a lustful temptation for something that they shouldn't have. So it helps us empathize with them. It helps us understand a little bit, which is good. That, that, 
that understanding gives us a, a teachability to learn, but then also a humility to engage them with the gospel, and again, not sound like a, a precocious jerk, a matter-of-fact jerk who thinks they know everything. Because we might be right, and a lot of times we are right when we're calling out same-sex attraction as sin. But we're doing it in a way that totally misses the point. The problem with the term gay Christian is when we define somebody else or ourselves like this, we begin to attach the word gay to who they are. It's their identity. And the only thing that defines our identity is Christ and where we are before him, whether, whether we are in Christ or we are not in Christ. That is the thing that defines our identity, not our sexual orientation. And so we reject that worldview, that our, that our identity is somehow wrapped around our sexual orientation. It's not. When we frame how we view someone by their behavior, we fail to get to the heart of what's going on. And so can you do me a favor? Because I forgot this. There's a whiteboard in there. Could you roll that out for me? It's in the office. If you go, you'll see it. it it's just there. Yeah. Um, so um, if, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 43 and 45. Um, so a lot of you have probably heard this illustration. This is something that Jesus gives. He talks about a tree and its fruit. And he talks about a good tree bearing good fruit and a bad tree bearing bad fruit. Does this sound familiar to you? So while you're getting there, we're going to be kind of in this text. This is going to be the primary text for the rest of our time. But it says this. Um, in verse 43, it says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear a good fruit. So a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. And then he says this. For figs, thank you. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person, and this is the point. Jesus gives this little illustration, and then he gives you the point. Like, hey, guys, here's what I'm saying. The good person, out of, his, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is huge when we're dealing with these issues. Again, think of what I just said before. If we frame the way we view somebody by their behavior, we're failing to get to the heart of what's going on. Behavior is helpful, right? Behavior is a, is a good gauge. Your behavior is going to help me gauge where your heart is. Right? So if your behavior is crazy, your heart's probably not right with the Lord. Sin doesn't originate from outside of a person. I want you to hear this. Sin doesn't originate from outside of a person. It begins from within a person and proceeds out of them. The fundamental work of the Bible is this. Uh, people ask this question all the time. If God's so good, why is there evil in the world? Well, the reason why there's evil in the world is because God is so loving. He hasn't gotten rid of the evil thing in the world, us. The gospel is about God getting the most evil aspect of creation out of creation without getting rid of humanity. And we are the most evil aspect of creation. Humanity is the most evil aspect of creation. It's not tornadoes. It's people. Sin doesn't originate. Sin isn't something out there that we need to shield ourselves from. Sin is something within me. The gospel deals with the source of sin, not the, not the symptom of sin. It deals with the source of sin. This affects our behavior, but it isn't just about our behavior. Right? When we think about people who are in sexual sin, somebody who's looking at porn, somebody who's masturbating, somebody who's, who has lustful thoughts, somebody who's idolizing sex because they're pursuing pleasure, somebody who's same-sex attracted, somebody who's confused about their gender, whatever it is, if, if, if we're focused on their behavior, if we're focused on the way that that sin is manifesting itself in their life, 
rather than getting to the heart of why they're sinning in the first place, we're not going to be faithful in our, in our efforts to bring the gospel to bear on their life. The Bible consistently pushes us to go beyond the exterior and look what's beneath the surface. And, and, and many of us might say, like, yes and amen. Like, like, sin originates from the heart. You're in total agreement with me. But I, I don't think this always plays itself out in our actions. Again, it goes back to the, to the point. God's, God's chief purpose in the life of somebody who's struggling sexually is not, like in the, in the instance of a gay person, it's not to make them heterosexual. It's not to change their behavior. It's to change their heart. It's to change their, their posture before God. It's to make them worshipers of spirit and truth. And as God makes people worshipers of spirit and truth, guess what changes? Behavior. But we can't just focus on behavior. We do this in parenting too sometimes, don't we? Rather than engaging our kids with the gospel, we're all about changing their behavior. And with like a three-year-old, you kind of got to do that a little bit more because like they don't know what the heck's going on. You got to be, be punitive with a three-year-old. You got to say, if you do this, you're going to get a spanking. But, you know, you guys know this. You can't spank your senior in high school. That would be, one, it would look kind of awkward. But, but, but two, like, huh? Yeah, uh, but like, man, like you, you got you, you to gotta get a little bit more creative. And, and I mean, that's a, that's a stage of life where you really got to be bringing the gospel to bear in the life of, of, of your son. Yeah, like that's super awkward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, so for, ma- for many of us, like our knee-jerk reaction to these issues is, is to show them why their behavior is wrong, right? So if, if I'm, you know, um, Jeremy, whoever in your life, and, and walk up to you and come out to you as gay, our knee-jerk reaction is to, for you to convince me why my decision to be gay is wrong, right? Like that's just how we respond to that. And here's the thing, like that's knee-jerk reaction because behavior is an easy reach. We can go after behavior. It's, it's much more difficult to get to the heart. But I want to show you how to get to the heart tonight. I want to show you what that looks like. And so we're going to take this idea of, of Jesus. We're going to stretch it a little bit, okay? It's, this isn't like, I, I think all of the principles we're going to teach are in the Bible. But Jesus isn't thinking of all this when he's giving this metaphor. He's being pretty simple. We're going to kind of stretch it a little bit and make it a little bit more complex. But I think it's helpful. So um, this is a tree not drawn by me, uh, somebody who's way more great and awesome. Randy on the worship team on Thursday when I was kind of polishing off finishing this training, I walked up to her and I said, hey, can you draw? And she said, yes. And I said, draw me a tree, please. Um, because I didn't want to make a slide because I just didn't and, and this, is, this is easier. So, um, so on this tree, you'll see various aspects of this illustration. So you'll see the seed, the soil, the roots, the trunk, and the fruit, okay? And, 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 and thinking of this, right, no good tree produces Bad fruit. No bad tree produces good fruit. Why? Because it all proceeds from the heart. Well, what's the heart in this illustration? The heart is the seed, right? And so as we're looking at this, this, this illustration, I want you to understand there are fallen, and you'll see this on the back side of your paper, everything on this illustration. There are fallen and redeemed characteristics to all of these things, right? There's a fallen posture of the heart, and there's a redeemed posture of the heart. There's a fallen posture of context. There's a redeemed posture of context, and, and so on and so forth through the illustration. The easiest one to see are the fallen fruit of somebody's life and the, and the redeemed fruit of somebody's life, right? Because behavior is easy to point out. We can see it easily. And so the seed is the heart, right? Out of the seed proceeds the whole tree. A good seed's going to bring about a good tree. An unhealthy seed, well, you're in trouble, right? And so this is what God is primarily concerned with, is the heart, He's not primarily concerned with behavior. He's primarily concerned with the heart. And so the the heart is the biblical image for the core of the human person, right? From it is is comes someone's entire like inner life. 
Now, now, the Bible wasn't written by biologists. They didn't really understand that, yes, human hands are on the Bible. God knew this, but he accommodated their, their lack of knowledge about science. And so the image of the heart in the Bible isn't the, the, the organ that pumps blood through the cardiovascular system. That's not what it's talking about when it says heart in the Bible. The heart is the seat of everyone's thoughts, emotions, attitude, affections, desires. All of these things we know come from the brain. But when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about all of these things. Genesis 8.21 reminds us of the fallen, real, of, the fallen reality of, of, of our hearts, right? Genesis 8.21 is this passage when, when it's talking about God condemning and judging the earth with the flood. He says all of humanity's bent on evil. They're, they're bent toward evil. They're prone to wander toward evil. We've all felt this tension. Um, I feel it with my three-year-old all the time. I don't have to teach him how to rebel. He just kind of naturally does it, right? So um, the human heart is, 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 is fallen. It's bent toward evil. And this is essential for us to understand because it puts us on the same page with every single person who's ever struggled sexually because we all have hearts that are bent toward evil. The only difference between me and them is the redemptive work of Christ and the gospel has transformed mine and, and, and theirs it hasn't yet, Lord willing. And, I, and, I, and, and our hope is that, again, that it, that it would. So f- the fallen nature of, of, of the heart is that sin changes and affects everything in the world. Everything in the world has been affected by sin and this starts with, originates itself with, the human heart. Remember, this is something in us, not out of us. And so when trying to understand how someone's heart is involved in their sin, be thinking about this. This is a huge question. What is their functional savior? This is a great question to ask somebody if they're they're struggling with sexual issues. What is their functional savior? And here are two things that are going to help you get to that question. The first one is this. What are they trusting in? What are they relying on? What do they push yourself to investigate where someone has placed their allegiance? What they're, what they're trusting in. Push yourself to be asking them, man, what do they value? This will give you a springboard into somebody's desires and their worldview, which we're going to talk about in, in, a, in a minute. But these questions, what are they trusting in and what do they value? They're going to help us answer, what's the functional savior? What are they putting their trust in? Who, who, are they giving the, who or what are they giving their allegiance to? What do they convince themselves of pursuing, right? These are going to discover in a person, these, these questions are going to help us discover in a person where they're looking to find satisfaction and fulfillment, right? In Christ, our Savior, we find satisfaction and fulfillment, ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment we know is found in Jesus. But when we're, when we're, when we're walking in sin, we're trying to find that satisfaction and fulfillment elsewhere. And so we ask these questions to gauge, okay, like what are they thinking is going to, going to help them, save them, give them comfort, give them security, whatever. And we're going to talk about how all this works. But here's the thing, and, and, I, and I want you to hear this regarding the heart. Jesus fundamentally changes the heart of the human person, period. There's no if, ands, or buts, right? 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, this is a conditional promise. If anyone is in Christ, the next thing that he's about to say is guaranteed to happen. They are a new creation, a new creature. The old is gone, the old is dead, and new has come. The heart is changed. There's a prophecy in Ezekiel that talks about that. That, that, that when the new covenant comes, God will remove your heart of stone, Israel, and he'll give you a heart of flesh that beats with affection for God. The thing that causes people to have affection for God is not our will, it's not our volition, it's not our decision, it's not asking Jesus into our heart, it's the supernatural work of God sending his Holy Spirit to regenerate the human soul. That's what changes people. And so here's the thing, and I, and I, and I, and I want you to hear this, because I think sometimes we can give false assurance to our children. 
by the time kids get into sixth, seventh grade, I get to put up with them, right? Like, that's what I get to do. It's fun. I love it. But here's the thing. When I ask kids, a lot of times when, I, when, when kids are wanting to get baptized, I'm like, so, like, like, what's God doing in your life? How do you know you're saved? Like, like, like tell me about that. And th- you almost hear this every single time with kids in the, in, in, in the U.S., especially in this culture. Well, when I was, like, seven or eight years old, I asked Jesus into my heart. Okay. So what's God doing in your life? And they don't know how to answer that question. That's because, now let me ask you this. What, what are they trusting in? What's their functional savior? Think about this with me for a moment. Well, their functional savior is not Christ. It's their prayer. They're not finding their security, their assurance, their salvation, their trust in Jesus, the person. They're putting their assurance in a prayer they prayed when they were seven. And so their faith isn't actually in Christ. It's in their prayer. They think their prayer saved them. Well, no, 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 no. Your prayer doesn't save you. Christ saves you. You see this in, in Titus where he talks about being washed with renewal and regeneration of the Holy Spirit. This is a supernatural work of God in the human person. It is not something we do on our own. And so what is their functional Savior? And understand that Jesus has the power to redeem the human heart. Why is this important? Because again, no amount of convincing or argument is going to transform their heart. Now, God uses our faithful proclamation of the gospel to bring people to faith and repentance, right? Like, that's a thing. God has called us to faithfully proclaim the good news of Jesus to anyone who will listen. And so we're supposed to be like the annoying people who won't shut up about it, right? Which is good. Just don't be a jerk. You know, listen to. Um, but but here's, here's the thing. We must pray and seek the Lord for transformation. He's the one who can do that. We can't. So when we're interacting with somebody who's struggling sexually, our knee-jerk response shouldn't be, you're wrong. Our knee-jerk response is, can I pray for you? I want God to do a work in your life, and I, I want to pray for that to happen. And when I go home tonight, I'm going to pray for you. When I wake up tomorrow, I'm going to pray for you. Why? Why is that so important? Because only God can transform the heart. We are only called to be faithful and continuously engaging them with the gospel, right? And so we spend time, spend time, spend time intentionally praying for people in your life struggling with sexual issues. That is like practical thing to do, number one, when it comes to this. And encourage your kids to do that. Like, that's step one. Let's pray for them. Let's seek the one who actually has the power to overcome this sin in their life. Remember, this isn't just an LGBTQI plus thing. This is, this is sexual immorality. This isn't just the, the chart on your table. This is pornography, adultery, hooking up, premarital sex, masturbation, sexual fantasizing. It's, it's all of these things. They all come from the same root. They all come from the same seed. We love far better when we are praying for those struggling with these issues. I love better when I'm praying for somebody. I love my wife better when I'm praying for her. I love this church better when I'm praying for her. It's just natural that when we begin to pray for people, our affection for them rises because we see the significance of of what we want God to do in their life and we see the significance of who they are as a person in need of Jesus. As we continue to care for people, we we must also remember that indwelling sin doesn't define who we are, right? Romans 7, 14 through 20 gives us a picture of Paul struggling with his indwelling sin. He doesn't know what to do, right? It's this weird passage where it says, do way too many times. It's a tongue twister. It's hard to say. But Paul talks about the things that he wants to do, he can't do. And the things that he doesn't want to do, he, he finds himself doing. So he says this, I find the law at work in my heart. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And he says, with my mind, I seek the spirit, but in my flesh I seek to gratify the desires of the flesh. There's this conflicted nature of Paul's condition. 
He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God in Christ Jesus, my Lord, who, who can save me and redeem me from this. So we, we've got to remember, indwelling sin does not define who we are. A person who is struggling sexually is not defined by their struggle. They're defined by their redemption and where they're at with Jesus. And so we don't bear weight on where they're struggling. We talk about it. We call their sin out, but we always call them to the redemptive work of Christ. We always point them back to the gospel. We always point them back to what Jesus has done. And so we still got quite a bit to go through. So this would have been a time where we would pause and kind of reflect on some stuff. But I want to get through the rest of this because we kind of started a little late and I want to make sure that I get you guys the information that you came here for and we can kind of process things a little bit at the end. Does that sound good? All right, so I'm gonna keep rolling. So we're gonna go to the soil next. So we talked about the heart, we're gonna go to the soil. This is context, right? This is context. And you, again, you have fallen context, and you have redeemed context. But every single person in here has grown up in a fallen context. And so when I think about context, I'm thinking about these things. I'm thinking about physical characteristics of a person, right? There's a physical context that we need to be mindful of, right? So medical issues and psychological issues can, can, can play into us struggling sexually, period. They just can't. This is a proven fact. And so we need to be mindful of the physical characteristics, the physical things at play when it comes to the context of a person. So, so when we're interacting with people who are struggling sexually, they, they could be affected by medical issues, they could be affected by psychological issues, and it could be lead, leading them to think and, and, and act and respond in a way that's, that's not good. But then also I, I think of family influences, right? Like genetics, upbringing, family culture, influence of family members. I have a really, really, really great book that's written by a really smart guy that just totally disapproves any sort of genetical connection between um, sins of same-sex attraction. It's really helpful because that's a big argument in the medical community that there's like a gay gene in people. And so if you guys are interested in a resource like that or you have somebody who's like, this is true, you can slide that resource to them. It's called Born This Way. It's by a um, a guy, I can't remember his name right now, but it's not on that list because it's far less practical than anything on that list. So, um, But family influences, right? Upbringing, family culture, influence of family members, all of these things can play into somebody struggling sexually. The nature of my fallen upbringing affected me. Well, why? I was influenced by a sibling to look at porn the first time I ever did. And so soil context plays into this. I don't want you to miss that, right? Cultural influences, Right? So think of it this way. Here's, here's the way that a culture could inf- influence a kid who's same-sex attracted or a kid who's questioning their gender. Um, a boy who's not falling into the cultural stereotypes. Right? So like you have a boy who doesn't want to play football or play sports at all. Maybe he wants to do ballet. Maybe he loves arts. Maybe he loves music. Maybe he loves piano. Whatever. Just a, he's, a, he's a boy that doesn't fit into cultural stereotypes. None of those things are wrong. It's a cultural stereotype. And since he doesn't fit into cultural stereotypes, the influence of his peers, which is another thing on here, is going to cause him to start maybe questioning his gender. Well, I don't feel like a boy or what you think a boy needs to be. It's because we have a distorted view. Our culture has a distorted view of of femininity and masculinity. Well, those are hard words to say. But we have a distorted view of what it means to be a man. There we go. That's better. And what it means to be a woman. I'll just try to sound less smart. That makes it it sound better. So so we have cultural influences. But then we, we also have spiritual warfare, right? There are supernatural spiritual beings at play in evil all around the world. Anytime evil is happening, there are supernatural forces at work, period. I know that sounds strange or weird to talk about, but it's, it is a, a reality of our existence as people. Um, the book of Revelation is, is, is this picture of when you peel back the physical layers of the universe, you see the spiritual work at play. 
That's what the whole book of Revelation exposes to us. Ephesians 6 is another passage that, that reminds us that we're, we're, we're up against rulers and powers and authorities that we cannot comprehend or imagine, and yet the Spirit of God has given us the power to overcome anything that the enemy, anything that the world, anything that our own flesh can throw against us. Youth ministry and church, I just want to say this, youth ministry and church are places where we try to cultivate the good soil, the good context in people's lives. Youth ministry and church is where we try to bring the redeemed element of, 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 of the soil, the redeemed element of, of, of context into light. We want to push back against the fallen context. In students' lives, we want to push back against the fallen context in people's lives to show them the context of redeemed life in the local church. The family is also designed to be this refuge of redemptive con- context. That's why the family is so huge and such a big deal. And yet in our culture, the family has fallen apart. You got something? Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. 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 I, I, I heard a, a Jewish parable. It's pretty funny. It says, um, if the mother eats onions and the father eats garlic, what do you think the kid's breath is going to smell like? I think it's a really good way to, like, communicate that truth. It's, it's, it's true. Um, I, had, I have a, a passive drug addiction. Um, Family generations of drug addiction are in my family. The Lord broke that in, in my story. It's an amazing work of God's grace in, in, in my life. I shouldn't be there. Um, I have family members that still struggle with drugs. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I would definitely affirm what you're saying, even from personal experience. And so personality and gifting, right? Um, persons experiencing same-sex attraction typically have personalities and gifts that don't fall under those cultural stereotypes. You know what I mean? And so, again, context is, is huge. Soil is a big deal. Peer influence and trauma are two other things that kind of feed this soil, right? You often see people struggling with sexual issues. Um, Promiscuity uh, often is brought about by some sort of sexual abuse in somebody's life, right? And so this is a a, a sin that's in their life that came out of some sort of trauma. Um, And it's a a sexual issue in nature, but it's birthed out of this soil issue of of trauma um, or even the influence of their peers. That was a big one for me. I grew up in a, in a time where it was, it was shameful to be a virgin and be like 16 years old. A lot of us probably did. It's a pretty normal thing for kids. And so my peers really influenced me to like lose my V-card, as you know they say, back in the day or, or whatever. And so um, peer influence is a huge soil issue when it comes to sexual issues. Because um, I, I, think of it, I think of it this way as well when we think of, when we think of soil and we think of context. I think of the guy who, who might be a believer and he's dating a girl who's a non-believer, which is like a bad idea anyway. Um, dating and teenagers, just bad idea. Um, so, so, so he's wanting to be faithful and walk in the path of obedience. But his girlfriend wants to have sex. And he has a longing for security. We're going to talk about desire in a minute. He has a longing. He wants to be secure. Maybe he has a family life, a context that's, that's kind of broken and dysfunctional. It's not very secure. Home's not a refuge for him. And so he has a great desire to find security in life. He wants to find security. He wants to find comfort. He wants to be loved. He wants to be accepted. Well, he's found that in her. She wants him to have sex. He's tempted to compromise. Not because he has a sexual desire, because he has a desire for security and fulfillment and he doesn't want to lose her. He doesn't want to lose this security, this fulfillment, this pleasure that he has in his life. And so he's willing to compromise on what he believes, what's important to him in order to pursue a desire that's actually become an idol in his life. And so that's kind of a practical way where we can kind of see this stuff work out. 
The people that we walk with, though, are not just sinners. This is huge for us. They're sufferers. We aren't sinners alone. We are also sufferers. We suffer from a fallen context, and we can typically emphasize either, either the sin or the suffering in somebody's life. Think about it this way. We all know the person, or we are all the person, that when, when confronted with an issue of sin in somebody's life, we, we bring compassion without confrontation, right? Think of the person who doesn't want to call it sin, they just want to be compassionate. I think of like the classic, typical like men's group where everybody's confessing porn addiction, but nobody's actually doing anything about it. Everybody's just like, oh yeah, I struggle with that too. And then, oh, me too. And then it just kind of begins this weird conversation where there's all this problem sharing, but no solution, no gospel, no anything. Right? And I'm only using that example because I'm a dude. That's kind of been my experience, right? But so you, you, have, you, have, you have heavy compassion but no correction. Or on the flip side, you have heavy correction with no compassion. And so when we, when we think about sin, when we think about navigating uh, the sexual issues in other people's lives or the sexual issues in our own life, we have to be mindful that we're sinners and we are sufferers. We have to hold both of those things in tension. We need both compassion and correction. We need both. Because we are victims of a fallen context and we are the initiators and the causers of that fallen context. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? Yeah? Yeah? Yeah, so we're not just, we're victims of, the fallen, of a fallen context. We're victims of a fallen world. Okay? And so when we, we need the compassion of others because we're not just the initiators. We're not just the cause of evil. We're victims of evil as well. Does that make sense? Okay, sweet. Mm-hmm. Don't apologize. I told you to interrupt me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it just it just depends, really. It depends on the situation. It depends on what's going on. But I, th- mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I think I think so. Like for me, I'm I'm prone to be corrective, right? So you've heard me do that on Sunday mornings. I'm very, I'm very confrontational just in the way I, I, I address sin and people and all those things. And so this has actually been really helpful for me because it's reminded me, okay, like, like when, I'm, when I'm communicating to somebody, whether personally, corporately, whatever, I need to be thinking of the sinner and the sufferer. I need to be thinking of both and I need to hold those two in tension. I can't just think of the sinner in the room, the one who's, who's cheating on his wife or, or the one who's lying or the one who's, who's living a double life or whatever, but I, I also have to be the, think of the sufferer in the room. The person who's grieving, the person who's hurting, the person who's, 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 who's struggling with something and wants to beat it but can't. They feel powerless to beat what's going on in their life. And so they might be living in sin, but they don't want to live in sin anymore. And so they're actually suffering from their own temptations and their own sin, and they don't know a way out of it because in their, in their mind there's a disconnection between what they're experiencing and the gospel, and so they think there's no hope for them. Well, that's a sufferer. They need to be comforted. And they need to be loved well. And so I think... Again, and this goes back to like when we focus on behavior alone, like, like there's so much here that's be- way deeper than behavior. The Bible calls us to go deeper. But when we focus on behavior alone, we start to get corrective and we start to think that, again, like if somebody comes out to me as gay, my response is to convince them that what they're doing is wrong. Most of the time when somebody's coming out as gay, they're filled with shame and embarrassment. Because at some level, their conscience has told them that what they're doing is wrong. Romans 1 talks about that, that we've rebelled. Like what's been known about God or what, what, what's been made known about God, God's existence is evident in creation. His, his existence is evident in our conscience. We have a, a, a conscience that allows us to kind of distinguish between right and wrong. It's jacked up, it's fallen, 
We have a conscience. That existence of a conscience and the ability to discern between good and evil is evidence of God's existence. Romans 1 talks about that. So Romans 1 actually says nobody's without excuse. Nobody can say, well, I deserve to be saved or, or that, that when I approach God that he's just going to understand my condition. No, no, nobody's out excuse. Uh, nobody has an excuse because we've all rejected God in some way. And Romans 1 talks about that. And Romans 1 is actually one of the most explicit uh, passages in the New Testament that condemns sexual sin that's, that's you know, gay. It, it condemns homosexuality outright. It shows, and it even shows God's involvement in that process. Romans 1 does. It's a very fascinating passage. Um, and so God in the gospel redeems our context, or our context by placing us in the context of the local church, right? In the local church, we are in an environment, right? You think, think 1 Corinthians 12, think body of Christ, think different pieces but one collective whole where we can actually leverage our differences for the glory of God and good of humanity. And so we're placed in the context in the church where our differences are not discriminated against, but they're actually valued. And what you have to bring to the table and what I have to bring to the table when it comes to the kingdom are distinctly different and yet equally as valuable in the kingdom of God, equally as significant in the eyes of God, and equally as necessary in the progression of the kingdom of God in the world. As a church, as Crosspoint, you are needed just as much as our elders are needed to do the work of ministry and see the gospel go forward in this community as it goes forward in heaven. And so the redeemed context is the church. This is why we have to get this issue right. Because the church is supposed to be the refuge on earth, the heavenly refuge on earth, earth where we can see fallen soil redeemed, fallen stories redeemed, fallen experiences redeemed, fallen people redeemed, fallen hearts redeemed. And so we've got to take context seriously, right? This is much more, when, when it comes to people struggling sexually, the context helps us see that it's much more than just calling people to repentance, telling them to turn away from their sin. Often we aren't just contributors to the sin of the world. Again, we're, we're victims of it. And so we need to appreciate the reality that some people are sufferers too. That trauma and, and, and family and all of these things kind of play. There's a story at play when somebody is struggling sexually. And it's our role and our responsibility as, 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 as somebody who this person has come to, as somebody who's, who, who is around and interacting with this person to engage in that story and, and get, a, get an idea of what's going on so that we can bring the gospel to bear in their life in a way that's practical and good and, and makes sense to them. And so I just, I just want to ask you, we're about 10 minutes over, okay? I have no problem, like, shutting things down and, and leaving. Obviously, we still have a lot more to talk about. Are you guys okay with going a little, little long tonight? Um, I won't keep you here after 8.30. You guys cool with that? Okay, thank you for your grace and forgiveness. Um, we're going to keep rolling. Is there anything, so we've we kind of talked about some things, but um, think about people that you know for a moment, people in your life who, who you may have experience with, who, who struggled sexually, maybe this is even yourself. Um, how have you maybe seen soil or context kind of at play when it comes to these issues? Like, how have you seen that? I'm curious. Have you seen trauma or family or culture or spiritual warfare or personality affect those things and i'm just curious if, if if so in what ways huh family yeah you've like you've seen that personally yeah trauma yeah spiritual warfare yeah the reason why i want you to because I, I think context is an easy thing for us to jump over and, and, and ignore so the reason why i ask that question is just for you to just kind of be thinking in your own mind, okay, like, 
Where am I seeing these things at? How are they, how are they showing up? So yeah, soil. The root, the root, desires, desires. Now this, this I think is, is one of the, the most important ones. And the, and the reason why is this. Um, here's, here's where I'm kind of getting this idea from. Uh, this is James chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 15. It says, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. His own desire. Not somebody else's desire, but his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, give, gives birth to death. And sin, when it's fully grown, bring, grown, brings death. This is James 1, 14 and 15. I'm reading out of the ESV. Our desires, here's the thing. Here's what happens, okay? Our desires... That thing is awesome. I love this. So our desires turn into demands, which then morph into idols. Our desires turn into demands, which turn into idols. Now, here, we're going we're gonna to play, play this out. Let's test this for just a minute. We're in America, right? We're in America, land of the free, home of the brave. We love two things more than anything. It is actually said that among, um, not my generation, I'm a millennial, so I irritate all of you. It's great. Um, so, so I'm a millennial, so not my generation, um, but Gen Z, the generation after me. Some have labeled them the screeners. Some have labeled them like whatever. Who cares? I don't really care. But Gen Z, it is said that the most valuable thing for Gen Z kids is Security. Security. Here's how this plays out in youth ministry. This is really funny. Like, kids don't want to play dodgeball anymore because they don't want to get hurt. Why? Why? Because Gen Z kids are actually the, the most parented generation in a long time. Millennials are the least parented generation in a long time. So you see the overcorrection? Millennials have, have overcorrected. After millennials, we've overcorrected and we've started to overparent our kids. And so now security is the... Most matter-of-fact thing. But we're in America, so that's kind of like, that's, that's intensified a little bit. And so I, I, think, I think two desires, here's the thing. These are good desires. Most desires are good. Some desires are just better to be repented of and not fulfilled, right? That's, we can agree about that. But most desires are actually good. So we'll, we'll throw two up on the board that are really, really great. So comfort, welcome to America, and security, right? Lock down those borders. I'm just kidding. I just want to make a political statement. Um, but seriously, so like that's, that's a way that you've seen that practically displayed in, 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 in our day and age, this desire for security, which again, these two things are totally good. These are not bad things, right? Amen? Comfort, security, these are good things. I totally enjoy um, hanging out at the beach with my feet up on a chair, kicking back, looking at the ocean, sipping some Mai Tais. Just kidding. I've actually never had a Mai Tai. But... Um, it seems to fit with a beach kind of theme. But so here's the deal. Desires turn into demands. When we take a good desire like comfort or security and we turn it into a demand, here's what happens, right? Think about it this way. We'll go back to the kid who wants to find security because he doesn't have it at home, right? He doesn't have it at home. So he, he's looking for security in his significant other, this girl that he's dating. And then so what happens is um, the way he got there is this. He wanted comfort and security. Well, his desire for comfort and security became a demand through disappointment. I'm not even going to spell it. Um, disappointment, despair, and discouragement. 
okay? He wanted to be comfortable. He wanted to be secure. But through his life, that desire was consistently met with disappointment, despair, and discouragement. And so as he was met with those things, it morphed into an idol because what he told himself was, I must have security. He didn't literally say this, but with his actions saying, I must have security, and I do not care what it takes to get it. I do not care what it takes to get it. I need security. Idol. A good desire turns into an idol. But this happens many, many, many significant ways. I wrote down a few desires that, are, that I think are pretty helpful for us when we think about this issue. Um, love, self-image, affirmation, affection, security, no pain or suffering, right? Good desire, yet yeah, it can turn into an idol. Control, comfort, understanding, intimacy. These are all things that are good for the most part. Control can be an iffy one. Control is actually a very good, good illustration of, of a desire that sometimes is just better to be repented of than fulfilled. I've seen many men and women fall into pornography addiction not because they wanted to see somebody that wasn't their spouse or their curiosity, but because they had a desire for control. And so they ran to pornography because it was something that they could control. It was sexual fulfillment that they could control. They could get it whenever they wanted to. It served them. It was something that they could manage and maintain on their own. They could do it whenever they wanted to. It was, it was actually fulfilling a longing of control. It wasn't just a sexual fulfillment. It was a control thing. Here's why desire is so huge. A lot of times, non-sexual desires can lead people into sexual sin. Comfort, security, control. These things can lead people into sexual sin. Some people may be looking uh, for, you know, desires of home, refuge, comfort, affirmation, and, 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 and there are many, many other desires that they could be looking for, but they're seeking to fulfill them or they manifest themselves. They show up in behavior of sexual sin. You see how that works? It shows up in behavior of sexual sin because their desires then get channeled through their worldview and then come out in there. Behavior, Because their worldview says that, that the way to fulfill that desire is through sexual sin, and so it shows up in their behavior. But again, if we're just worried about that behavior, we're missing all of this. We're missing all of this. And Christ gives us totally new and redeemed desires in the gospel. He changes our desires. This is why our behavior changes as Christians, because our desires change. Because Christ has changed our heart, he's changed our context, he's changed our desires, he's given us new ones. Listen to this passage in Galatians, this is a beautiful promise. But I say walk by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, guess what? You will not gratify, you will not fill, you will not feed the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Jesus totally transforms our desires. He gives us new ones. Paul describes this as the things I used to love I now hate and the things I used to hate I now love. We have new desires as Christ followers. Jesus redeems them. He buys us back out of sin. He gives us new life in him and we now have new desires because our heart has been changed. We have affection for God. We have desire for God. And here's the thing. I, I want you to see how practical this is. You have a desire for love well, let me communicate the gospel to you in a way that shows you how Christ fulfills your desire for love. Let me communicate the gospel for you to show you how Christ rewrites your self-image and redeems the image that he originally created you in. So you're no longer marred by sin. You're, you're whole in Christ. 
Let me show you how, how God gives you affirmation in the gospel because he's called you, he's given you a purpose. You have a role in the kingdom and the progression of heaven on earth. Let me show you how God in the gospel has given you ultimate security and that even though there's pain and suffering in this life, there is a promise in the life of, to come that you will spend eternity in the absence of pain, in the absence of suffering, that God is in the business of making all things new and there's evidence of that in the fact that he has made you new right now. We're in this already not yet where we're made new, but we're still living in a fallen world. But the fact that we've been made new, the Holy Spirit is this deposit securing for us and showing us the eternity that we're waiting for. But it's also, we're here. So we're not just passively waiting for that eternity. We're bringing heaven to earth. We're showing people that new life has come. We're helping people see that we can be made whole. Do you see how the communication of the gospel can start to impact? And we can start to hit people on a whole nother level when we think about what they want, what they desire. When we, when we find out what their functional savior is, where their heart is, we have a pathway from their behavior to their heart. And we start with their behavior because that's what we can see and then we, we work our way toward the heart where we can then engage them in the gospel. We can, we can tell them, you might want control. You might want control. But God is in control over everything and there's nothing you can do about that. And yet he promises that everything you need will be provided for you. And so you don't need to worry about what you, what you eat. You don't need to worry about what you wear, right? It's just Matthew 6. You don't have to have anxiety about this life because God promises that if you seek the kingdom first, if you desire the kingdom first above all things, all these things will be added to you. You will be all right. You might not be wealthy King Tut, but you will be fine. The Lord will sustain you, and he will show you what you need, most of which is himself. Not your clothes, not your food, not your money, him intimacy there is no greater intimacy than the promise that we are unified with christ that christ is in us and we are in him that in christ we are fully known by god there's nothing that he doesn't know about us we are fully known we're the bride of christ there's no more intimate image than that we abide in him as we obey his commandments you see how you can take all of these the gospel is this complex diamond of good news and you can just turn this thing and turn this thing and come at it from this angle and this angle and this angle all when you, when you see the desires in somebody, you can just really speak the gospel to somebody in a way that's personal. And yet in a way that doesn't take away from the truth and reality that sin is true and we love sin more than Jesus and that's why we need Jesus. Christ gives us new desires. He fulfills our deepest longings. And so some questions that you can maybe ask somebody, like once, you, once you're starting to get an, 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 an impact of their desires, like how are your desires competing with one another? Right? How is your longing for security competing with your longing for love? And, and so like the way that this could look like is, right, we'll go back to the kid who, who, who wants security and probably wants love from this girl, right? How are those competing with one another? Well, he knows what love really is, and it has nothing to do with sex, but his, his desire for security, he doesn't want her to leave. So you see how his desires are almost kind of arguing with each other? And it can put somebody in a really confused position where, they're, again, they're prone to compromise what they believe for the sake of whatever desire or idol they're chasing. And so our desires can sometimes compete with one another. But, it, like, what are your desires? Use that list to kind of think through, man. Like, even when your kids are, like, doing something dumb in school, like, well, like what do they actually want? Maybe they want attention. Well, that's helpful. Because it allows you to see through, you know, doing whatever in class, making somebody laugh and getting in trouble and sent to the principal's office, then, then 
it helps you see past that to see what they really want. Well, th- then you can start to remind them and, and help them see how the gospel already gives that to them. That's already promised in Jesus. Christ notices you. He sees you. But it also helps you s- say, hey, dude, it ain't about you. Because our desires for attention are typically from a posture of pride because we think we're awesome, right? Like that's, that's where that comes from. And so again, it helps us just navigate the heart of, a, of, a, of, a, of, our, of our kids, but then you, know, you can take this and apply it to people who are struggling sexually. Think about your own desires for a moment, right? How have you seen your desires show up in your life in a fallen and redeemed way? Maybe that's a good conversation to have with your spouse when you get home or on your way home or whatever. Like how have we seen our desires, our wants, go from desires to idols? How have we wanted something, been discouraged or, or, or lost it, and then it became an idol? We needed it. How, how, how does it go through this, this, what is it, what is it, there we go. How does it go through this progression of desires, demands, idols? How do we see that in our life? The trunk, this is the most tricky one. This is worldviews, right? These are, these are things that we believe about God, about people, about the world. Worldviews are huge because they act as pillars in our lives, right? Worldviews kind of hold us up. They, they bridge the gap between our, our desires and our behavior, Worldviews are, are, again, I think that this, this is the most difficult thing to navigate because it's the most abstract of everything that we've talked about tonight. I like to think of, 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 um, I like to think of worldview in, in this way. Worldviews are the beliefs that we have that serve as lenses through which we see the world. Our worldview serves as a lens through which we see the world. The fallen worldview is described in Romans 1. In Romans 1, it says this. This is the fallen worldview. Claiming to be wise, this is the worldview of everybody who's not in Christ. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So they claim to be smart and intelligent. They claim to be with it, but they're actually not. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up. He gave them up. This isn't a passive God. This is active. He actively gave them up. This is an act of judgment against rebellious humanity. God gives them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. See, there's this thing that happens in the fallen worldview where where there's worship of creature rather than worship of creator. It's the fundamental worldview of the fallen condition. Sometimes it's the worship of self. And so as we think about the the fallen worldview, we, we, we have to remember Jesus works to transform our worldview by the power of the gospel, right? Think of Think about this. In Christ, the chief purpose of everything is the glory of God. That's the starting point. Our purpose for existing is the glory of God. The purpose of this world is the glory and the majesty of God. It's to make God known. It's to make God famous. It's to lift him up for display for all to see. That's the purpose of life. And so, and so in Christ, when Christ transforms our worldview, when he redeems our worldview, we begin to see the glory of God as the most supreme thing in our life. It's, it's the chief purpose of our existence, but that affects the way that we see other people because you see other people then begin, um, begin to be seen as people that we need to serve and we need to love and we need to help them along in the kingdom because we want them to see what? We want them to see the glory of God, which is what the chief purpose of all things. And then we begin to see ourselves differently in light of our worldview. When we see the glory and supremacy of God, we begin to see with clarity how fallen we are, how prone to wander we are 
how far in distance we are from that glory, right? God initially created us to inherit rich glory in Genesis 1. We all fall short of the glory that God initially designed for us to rule and reign as his representatives over all the earth. That is a position of glory that we have fallen short of. That's what Romans 3.23 is talking about when it says we fall short of the glory of God. The glorious position that we're designed in. We fall short. We don't, we don't measure up to that position. We've, we've deviated. We've overstepped. And now we're, 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 we're fallen. We need redemption. We need to be brought back to that place. And so the, the, the more that we understand God's glory, the more we understand our own sin, the more we understand our own tendency to wander. The whole point of everything we do at Crosspoint and everything we do in a youth ministry, it's worldview formation. It's, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's helping people understand how to see the world and how to see others, how to love God and how to love people. It's, it's, it's helping form and shape the worldviews of people. And so a practical thing that we can do in somebody's life is, is, is help expose worldviews that they have, that they're buying into, that they, that they shouldn't, right? And so this is important. Being a student of culture and those we walk with gives us a teachable attitude and an ability to see worldview. The reason why Christians struggle with seeing worldview is because we've isolated ourselves to only know and see our own. We don't expose ourselves enough to the culture around us to be able to know and understand the worldview of the people around us. And so it's not living and participating in the culture. It's just being a student of the world and what's going on so that we can understand what people are believing. Why? So we can engage it with the gospel. Think about it this way. What are some worldviews that you think are important among Christians in the United States? Let me give you a couple. Nationalism. The idea that country and allegiance to country is a top priority. Yeah. Sometimes what we do is we make our Christianity subordinate to and under our our allegiance to Jesus. Our allegiance to the U.S. becomes less than our allegiance to Jesus. You saw this play out in the church phenomenally in the great election of 2016, right? when you saw people get way more fired up about their candidate than you saw them get fired up for the gospel. You saw them way more passionately investigating claims against Hillary Clinton because, you know, apparently in the United States you have to be uh, um, an elephant and, and a Christ follower. Those two things are the same. They're not, right? We don't fit nice and neatly as Democrats or Republicans, but, but we don't think much about the, these things. Again, these are worldview things. That's a worldview statement. To be Republican is to be Christian. To be Republican is to be evangelical. To be Republican is right. To be Democrat is to be evil. These are worldview statements. Well, what's another one? Merit-based living. This, is, this comes from our, 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 our country. We're a capitalistic nation, which means this. You earn your living, right? Plain and simple. You earn your living, you get your cut, you're done. Well, what that can begin to do, that worldview can begin to shape a merit-based system of belief where then we no longer believe in in giving to the poor. I'm not talking about free handouts. I'm just talking about the biblical command to give to the poor and love the poor. But we justify that and say we don't want to give free handouts because we've been shaped by our worldview of merit-based living because of our capitalistic culture and our capitalistic politics. I'm not anti-capitalism. I think it's good. Like It's a good form of government. But it's, it, capitalism and Christianity aren't the same thing. Capitalism is not the, 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 the economic posture of the church. We're, we're generous people. It can't be because our merit before God is worthless. We can't earn our standing before God. But here's another worldview. I'll get away from politics for a moment. Emotion-driven 
life. If I feel good, then life is good. If I feel bad, then life is bad. We've talked about how uh, the, the gospel gets in the way in our emotions a couple weeks ago at Hype. And so we believe, we've, we've convinced ourselves that if we feel bad, then we must be in, in wrong standing with God and we've forgotten the promises of God that if we're in Christ, we are in Christ, we are secure. Nothing can take us out. Our emotional stance can't take us out. The fact that I don't feel like following Jesus today doesn't mean I'm not Christian. It just means that I'm tainted by a fallen nature and I need more redemption. I'm in this already not yet where I'm saved, but creation is still fallen. I'm still in the flesh while also in the spirit. Comfort and security. That's a worldview thing. It's a desire thing, but it also shapes our worldview. I was told um, by a believer about uh, four years ago, I, uh, Sarah and I were contemplating moving to a really rough neighborhood in Peoria to do ministry. I was going to move in. I was going to rent a house. We were going to move into the neighborhood. And I was told by a Christian, you are a poor husband and a poor father because you are putting your family at risk. Really? Because the, the last time I checked, my comfort and my security weren't subordinate to my relationship and allegiance to Jesus. But we can have a, we have a worldview that... that Obedience to Christ means comfort and security. No, no, no. Obedience to Christ means obedience to Christ and his word, which often isn't comfortable. It's definitely not secure. In this world, it's secure eternally. Sometimes that means being a little uncomfortable. And so worldview, it's a little abstract. It's a little hard to, to grasp at, but worldview is huge. And so we've, we've got to be students of the culture around us. A worldview uh, that, that really affects issues of, of, of sexual, that are sexual in nature, is that our identity is shaped by our sexual fulfillment. That, that is a worldview statement. That is, that is a way that our desires manifest themselves in behavior. That, that my identity is wrapped up in discovering who I am sexually, I can live out of my true self. These are, these are like real words that psychologists and, and, and affluent people in our culture say, who are for defining marriage on their own terms, declaring what's good over what's not. I kept you guys. You guys are, we're three minutes over. Christ is in the business of redeeming the whole person through the gospel, not just merely their behavior. I hope you have a picture tonight of what that whole person actually looks like. It's not just about making somebody who's transgender and is a, and biologically a man but thinks they're a, they're, they're a woman it's not just about convincing them that they're a man. It's about convincing them that they belong to Jesus and that they're living in their sin and, and, and they need to come to him and that he will fulfill all of their desires and all of their longings. The redemptive work of Christ through the whole person transforms their heart, their context, their desires, and their worldview. Guess what? Their behavior will follow. Their behavior will follow. We bear the fruit of righteousness by trusting in Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things are wrought in our life, not by our, our works, not by our merit, by Christ through the power of the Spirit. Those are things that show up in my life when I am trusting in Christ, when my posture before the Lord is worship, longing for the renewal of my mind by being washed by the Word. As we've seen in Luke 6, the fruit of a person's life exposes the condition of their heart. It exposes the condition of their heart. Sexual sin exposes the condition of somebody's heart. It doesn't define who they are. It exposes the condition of their heart. And God has called us and equipped us 
And, and here's the thing. I've given you a lot. But, but I hope that you've seen, I, like, like my hope when you, when, you, when, you, when you come out of this is like, oh, I can do this. Like, like God's equipped me. He's called me. He's sent me. There's some practical things here that I can really think through. Like, you don't need to be some wizard counselor with a PhD to be able to do this stuff. Like, like God has equipped us and sent us as the people of God to navigate and, and engage these issues with the gospel. Not fix people. Engage them with the gospel. God fixes people. God, God takes people who are living outside of the boundaries of their humanity and makes them truly human by making them in Christ, right? Our job is to faithfully proclaim. We've got to look deeper because the scriptures beckon us to go deeper. Our behavior acts as an arrow pointing directly to the affections of our heart and its condition. And so as we think about behavior, as we think about the things that we see, I, I also don't want you to think about behavior just in the negative. Like, don't miss the good fruit in somebody's life. Think about somebody you're walking with who might be struggling with pornography addiction or, or sexual lust or something like that. Is there evidence of the Lord's grace in their life? Is there evidence of the Lord at work in their life? Like, point that out. Show them. Encourage them. Because again, th- that is something you can do to remind them and, and speak into the reality that, hey, like, I know you're a sufferer, but Christ has got you and he can redeem, and redeem this sin. But you also need to quit doing what you're doing because it's, 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 it's anti your nature now. You're a new creation. The, the, the old is dead. Why are you running back like a dog to their vomit? It won't satisfy. It won't fulfill. It won't, it won't fulfill those desires. It'll always leave you thirsty, wanting more. And so I, I know we've covered a lot. It's like drinking out of a fire hose when you're talking about this thing. And, and I tried to condense it in 90 minutes. And it turned into 120. So thank you for bearing with me. This is like the first time I've ever gone through this um, with a group like this. So thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Um, if you like want to leave, like feel free to leave. But I, 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 did want, I do want to be faithful to my promise and just kind of open it up if you guys have any questions. Um, again, like I said, I know we can't cover everything. Maybe there's something we covered you want to hear more about. Maybe there's something we didn't cover and you're like, hey, what, what about this? Um, I just kind of want to open up the floor for questions for maybe about five, five or ten minutes um, until you guys are really done asking questions or until you want me to just pray and close. So um, are there any questions that you guys have that you, you'd like to kind of talk about as it relates to this and all of the things? Yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but like my personal experience is that oftentimes the Spirit uses the people of God to get there for me. Like, I don't wake up in the morning with an epiphany of, like, oh, well, here's how my heart is corrupted today. Like, no, you, you know what I mean? Like, like uh, the Spirit doesn't just magically, like, speak to me and tell me what's wrong with somebody. You know, it, it, often, it, like, it, it comes through, or, like, even in my own correction, it comes through other people. Like, God's sending people to my life and calling me out in this way or this way or asking me this question, which then causes me to think about something, and the Spirit's like, hey, dummy, there it is right there, you know? Uh, the Spirit doesn't call me dummy. That's just me, but... Um, the, like, like, yeah, it's, it's, and, and so, uh, I think it's, uh, 
Paul David Tripp, he, he wrote a book called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. It's a phenomenal book. But the whole point of the book is this, that God has called and equipped and sent normal people into the lives of normal people to help them. And God uses us as instruments in his hands to carry out his grace and his gospel in the lives of people. And so, like this, this is, I mean, this is really what that is. Um, it's, it's helping us navigate that because, and you see it in the scriptures, typically God uses others to help. I think of like David and Bathsheba. David didn't wake up one morning and realize he sinned. No, God sent a prophet to call him on his stuff. He sent a man. I know it's a prophet, but he's a man. And God sent him to call him on his stuff. And the way that he did it was brilliant. He didn't just say, hey, dude, you sinned. He gave him a parable of a shepherd. To, and David was like, well, that dude needs to die. He, he created sympathy in David's heart for what was going on. And then said, David, you're the man. Like, that's you. And David was just broken. He was shattered. It was God using a normal dude who was a prophet of the Lord to, to call him out in that. So I, so I love that you're, you're seeing not just, oh, this is possible, but, but what I'm hearing what you're saying is there's a, there's a burden on your behalf to engage in the lives of other people and, like, and like do the hard work of ministry with them. Because that's a mess. It's nowhere near as clean as that. <laughs> Yeah. Tolerance. Yeah. 
a worldview statement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, no, it's not. And 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 but and again, I love hearing in you this zeal for the Lord, like this is wrong, and yet you also are saying, I see a bridge to empathy with this girl who's lesbian, because we're longing for the same thing sometimes. Hers might be manifesting itself and showing up in behavior of lesbianism, and yours might be showing up in in being codependent on your husband or whatever. You know, you know what I mean? Just uh, 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 something that's a little bit more socially acceptable or hideable. And so it, it kind of helps us get on the same page as somebody else and really talk to them as an equal, um, which, which it's, it's talking to them with dignity. I, I think a lot of the, the ways that we, we confront people in their sin is we strip them of their, we strip them of their dignity and we, we heap shame and condemnation on them. And, and I, think, I think it's in, essential for us to feel the condemnation of God in order for us to understand grace, right? Like, like we need to talk about sin as something that is serious and, and not to be tolerated. And, and yet there's a, there's a way for us to do that and, and, and communicate that in a way that also says, but there's a way. Here's the way. And, um, and I think even helping people understand, like, and, and having in the back of our mind, God's longing is not for her to be straight. God's longing is for her to be his. And um, I think that's a, that's a harder line for us because we want them to be straight because we operate under this worldview. Got to get married. You can't be gay, so you have to be straight. God wants to make you straight. So we, 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 we kind of get there that way, and it's like, well, like, no, like, you need Jesus. Let me give you the gospel he will deal with that. And, and again, there's story after, I just read, uh, a buddy of mine heard I was doing this workshop and I can throw this article out to anybody who's interested. There was like a Hollywood fashion designer, totally gay. He used to like hang out at Drew Barrymore's house. Um, he was in a coffee shop at, uh, I think it was Intelligentsia Coffee Shop in LA, um, hanging out and he saw a group of boys with Bibles open talking about the Bible. They invited him to church. They had no idea who this guy was. Um, invited him to church. He came to church, heard the gospel, responded in faith and repentance, turned from his sin years ago, and just came out with a memoir talking about his, his, his conversion experience. Um, there's a guy named Sam, Sam Alberry who wrote like half of the books on there. He is a, a gay man who got converted and is now celibate. And so he, he wrote an entire book called Is God Anti-Gay? That's really, really helpful um, in helping you navigate this whole idea of like, God is, God is not anti-gay in the sense that he's not willing to save those who are, and he's also not anti-gay in the sense of he wants to make them heterosexual. Like, he chooses to be celibate and, and does, not, does not give in to temptations of sexual temptation for people of the same, same gender. And that all sounds really strange to us, again, because it's not of our, our experience, but that's why you always hear me frame it with this word same-sex attraction, because that's for my benefit, because it helps me empathize with that person a little bit better. So, no, I, I love that. I think that's that's awesome. Any any other questions? Any pushback? Dialogue? Like,
and I've gotten so much of that. And that, so what we did was, when we talked about this, as we've been talking and going through, I it was sin, but God doesn't take them or despise us any more than our sin does. Jealousy. You know, yeah, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in in 1 Corinthians 6, there's uh Paul is actually teaching the Corinthian church and he's teaching against some sexual immorality that's going on in the church. What the sexual immorality is, is there's a guy sleeping with his stepmom. So, like, he even says, like, there's sexual immorality that even the pagans, even non-Christians, think is bad. And you guys are, like, applauding this. It's a pretty jacked up church. If you think the church, is, like, people are, people are always like, man, I wish we could go back to the church of the first century. And I'm like, man, you need to read the book of Corinthians, because the church of the first century is jacked up. Don't romanticize the church of the first century. They had their problems, too. Um, so, 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 guys sleeping with stepmom, and Paul gives this teaching, and he, he lists sexual immorality first in this list, but then he, he, he talks about greed, anger, all this stuff. There's this list of sins. Um, it was very common in that culture to give uh, virtue and vice lists. And so Paul was doing that. He's kind of speaking to them on their terms. He was given this vice list of, of sin, but he was doing it in this context of teaching on sexual immorality. And what he actually does is he, he makes a distinction or puts sexual sin in a different category than other sins. He doesn't say it deserves more condemnation. He basically says, this is just a different kind of sin. And what he says is, it's a sin of the body. Well, why is a sin of the body important? Remember, he's not talking to non-believers. He's talking to believers. Well, sins of the body are important because your body is the temple of the spirit. So a lot of people like to like throw that verse out on people who like smoke cigars or or something. And I'm like, he's talking about sexual sin. He's not talking about any of that stuff. And so, and so what, what he's doing is he's, he's taking this, this idea of sexual immorality, saying this is a sin of the body, and this is, this is a different category because your body is the temple, and so we have to regard our bodies as holy, like the temple. And so the way that I would I, I, I kind of navigate these issues, especially when talking about God's love, because like you said, people are like, oh, well, God loves me. When I hear that, I'm like, kind of. So a, a really, really great example of this is throughout the Bible, there's this, this, this doctrine or this truth called common grace. Common grace is grace that God has given to all men, all people, right? So we all breathe, we all have life, common grace. We are all not as sinful as we could be, common grace. God has, in his sovereign rule, put a limit on our sinfulness. Somehow, like we're all, it, like, if, if, if God didn't do that without common grace, we would all be like Hitler. Like, that's, that's an example of that. Um, that's like the depth of, of our corruption, and, and I think that's something that a lot of us don't think about. But um, sin has affected us in incredible ways, and it's an act of God's grace that we're not as sinful as we could be. And so that's an act of common grace. Um, the, wealth, the wicked becoming wealthy, an act of common grace. Um, the righteous becoming wealthy, an act of common grace, right? So like, these, these are, are things or ways that God has extended favor to people that they don't deserve all over the world, whether they're believers or not. 
The problem with, with communicating God's love in a general sense is we, 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 we forget that God's love is applied to the believer in a, in a specific sense that's far more superior than the love that's applied to a non-believer. God, God has displayed his love for me in such a way that his son's sacrifice was for my sin. He hasn't applied that sacrifice, that atonement to everyone. And so there's a, there's a degree of God's love that I have that other people don't who are not in Christ. And so when we communicate God's love in a general sense, we're, we're dismissing the reality that he's actually applied that love in a much more significant and specific sense to the church. And so God has a love reserved for the church that's far deeper. The church is the bride of Christ. Somebody who's lost is not the bride of Christ. And so, we, and we, 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 we kind of throw verses around that we don't understand, right? It's like John 3.16, somebody might say, well, God loves the world. Well, in that passage, he's talking about a Jew, and Jesus is actually convincing the Jews that God's love extends outside of that ethnic group. That's what he's saying when he says God loves the world. God loves the Jew and the non-Jew. He loves the world. Not every single person of all time in every place, but God loves all kinds of people, all kinds of ethnic groups. His, 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 his love does not pigeonhole itself to the Jewish people. It's extended to all the nations, which is the progression of the New Testament. God's gospel beginning with the Jews and going out to the Gentiles. And so we have to be careful when communicating God's love in a general sense of, well, yes, God loves them. Well, what do you mean by loving them? And I think if we, if we define what we mean by love, and, and I think common grace helps us do that, right? Like God's given them life. God, God's not obligated to give them life, and yet he's given them life. So in that way, he showed some sort of love to them, but it's nowhere near the degree of love that he's shown to you when he applied the sacrifice of his son on your sin to clean you and wash you and redeem you. Does that make sense? That probably just made your job way more difficult, but um, it's, <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, it's, love is not a helpful word in our culture. Because love is so, like, general. And it's, it's, it's I think for, for many people, it's an emotion. It's actually not. It's an action. It's a verb. And so to, to kind of make that distinction of what you mean by love for the non-believer is important. Because this, this is a radical statement for some, but Jesus didn't die for everyone. He didn't die for everyone. If he died for everyone, then everyone would be saved. Jesus has applied his death. Jesus' death has only been applied to some people, and that's the church. And we, we, we know that because some are judged to life and covered in his blood, and some are not. And so, and that's, that's, a, that's a hard truth, but it's also a good truth. So, um, and it's a helpful one as we navigate that. And I think, I think, again, common grace is a very good thing to look at. Ecclesiastes is an entire book where the author is wrestling with common grace. Because he's like, why do the rich flourish and the righteous perish? Like, what the heck is going on? This is jacked up. Proverbs is this book of, like, black and white. Like, the fool, blah, blah, blah. The, 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 the righteous, blah, blah, blah. And it seems as black and white. And Ecclesiastes is just wrestling with the gray. Because life is an enigma. You can't, you can't categorize it. It's not that simple. And, um, and, it, and, so, and part of that is it's, it, he wrestles with common grace. And so that might be a good, good book for you to sit in as you're, as you're kind of wrestling with this. Um, <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 Right. Mm hmm. 
I can hear that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You guys got anything else? Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And, and, and again, we'll post the audio. Um, it won't post by tomorrow. I'll work on it tomorrow, and it'll be up Monday morning at 5 a.m. So anybody, yeah, that's when, it, that's when our podcast refreshes. So Monday morning when whoever wakes up, they'd be able to listen to it. Um, I'll edit it pretty heavily. I'll probably leave the Q&A stuff out, so it, it will be at least reasonably short. But... Um, but yeah, and then my, my transcript of everything I've said, it, it will also be posted online. So um, even some of the stuff I skipped over, so it's like bonus, you know, if you, if you get that. <laughs> um, I just, I just kind of want to ask, was this, was this helpful for you or not helpful? I'm just, I'm just curious, okay. Um, I would love to hear how, how this is helpful, maybe, maybe how it, it wasn't, or like, hey, we didn't need this, or anything like that. Just as we think about this, I just want to remind you, we're going to do this again with students um, it's, I think, helpful for you to go through this. Maybe you're like, man, I think the kids need to hear this exact thing. Great. I, um, maybe it's, they need to hear the, just this part of it. Maybe they need to hear, yeah, yeah. Um, that is not mine. I will not own any of that. That's all, that's all me, me robbing the, 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 the wonderful World Wide Web of people who have resourced. Yeah. Yeah, totally, yeah. And, um, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a rich metaphor. Um, it's really really helpful. So no, I'm I'm glad this is helpful for you. Uh, maybe this is something for you. Like, if we need to do this again, like if if you know people that are like, hey, the audio is great and the handouts are great, but we need to like get in a large gathering and process this together. I would love to do this again. Like, I have no problem with that. I'm available. Um, all the stuff's done, so it's just. It's just making it work in 90 minutes and making sure we can do it in 90 minutes and cutting some stuff out. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, again, it's a, it's a big issue, and, and I think one of the one of the helpful things is it's something like we want to dialogue about. So, you know, a, a two-hour training doesn't always feel like a two-hour training, but it's two hours. So I'm, I do apologize for that. I know your time is is valuable, and so I thank you for giving it to me tonight. Uh, let me pray for you, and then again, if you want to grab coffee, dig into these issues a little bit more. Maybe you have questions. Like I would love to meet with you, hang out, come over to your house. Um, whatever. So I'm, I'm available. I'm yours. My schedule might change because I might get another job soon, but, you know, nine to five. So I'm probably more fit into your schedule now than, uh, than I would have before. So let me pray for you, and then uh, we will get you out of here. <sighs> Father, we, we need you so desperately. We, um, we confess that when it comes to issues of sexual sin, we, uh, we fall way short. God, we are people who have indulged the flesh sexually in many ways, each of us. And God, we've, we've, we've done it in, in, when we were in Christ and we've done it apart from Christ. And yet you in the gospel have restored us. You've called us out of the darkness and into the light. You've redeemed us. You've brought us back. You've, you've taken away our, our affection for sin and you've given us a new heart. And so God, we just praise you for the redemptive work that you've done in our lives. As we've meditated on, on just how deep that work goes tonight, I pray that our appreciation for you would grow, that our love for you would grow. But God, most of all, that we would really just think um, critically about these issues, that we would engage people with the truth, but we would, again, we would not focus on behavior modification. We would, 
we would elevate and lift up the gospel and the good news of your son uh, in their life and hold it up for them to see and, and, to, and to really apply it to their lives and show them the implications of the gospel in their lives in really practical ways. God, we want to be people who are faithful with the good news that you've given us to share. So help us to do that. Help us to be people who are dependent on your spirit in all things. Uh, and not just in issues of sexual that are sexual in nature, but in any sort of issue. In our relationships with one another. God, help us to be a body that's unified. And help us to be a body that stands on your word and your word alone. By the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name.